Hello, podcast listeners. A quick notice before we get started with today's episode. Rhiannon and I will be recording a live episode of Emperors of Rome on the 7th of September at 8pm Melbourne time. It will be over Zoom and we'll be discussing Boudicca. If you'd like to tune in, you can register now. There will be links on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page and our respective Twitters. Hope to see you there. Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, Head of the Department of Languages and Linguistics at La Trobe University. For the next few episodes, we'll be covering some of Rome's greatest enemies. This is episode CLXXII, Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix was a Gallic leader who managed to unite the local tribes and mount a credible defence against Caesar during his campaign in Gaul. While his resistance was ultimately futile, he has become a symbol of French nationalism and provided a much-needed foe to Caesar's Gallic war commentaries. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Vercingetorix is a Gallic chieftain. He is a really seemingly charismatic guy who manages to unite the Gallic forces in uh, 52 BCE against the kind of might of Caesar's Roman army, which has been in Gaul since 58. Uh, He comes from the Arverni, just kind of in central, modern central France. And he is not in very many sources, but we do find out about him in Caesar's own Gallic War in the final book that Caesar wrote in Book 7. And you say charismatic, and this is, I guess, illustrated by the fact that the Gauls are very disjointed. Well, Caesar characterizes them as uh, constantly lacking in unity, unable to get it together, unable Mm. to resolve their differences. They're always warring and squabbling, whereas Vercingetorix, at least for a period, manages to get enough of them to band together to form a united front against Rome and to talk uh, in ways that Caesar reports of liberty and this kind of last chance of liberty. Mm. Banding together will mean that they're not going to be enslaved and talking about how getting them together makes them more formidable than they can ever be. So he first comes to prominence uh, in Caesar's texts towards the end of the Gallic War. And the fact that he unites them at this point kind of shows them how successful Caesar is being just by going around the countryside, picking off tribes. Yeah, I mean, most of what Caesar relates during the first six books of the Gallic War is his conflict with particular individual tribes or nations within Gaul. And he's also fighting against, occasionally against Germani or Britanni going off across the Rhine or across the English Channel. Mm. But yeah, it is much more discreet. Whereas we do kind of get a bit of a sense in book one, actually, there's a character called Orgetrix who tries to band people together, but it's very short-lived. And Vercingetorix kind of balances this out. He's a bit like Orgetrix, but I guess temporarily more successful. He gets a lot more peoples from quite a, you know, a large area of ancient Gaul together to fight this army that's just been really dominating their land for a whole seven years by this period or six years. Mm. One of our problems, of course, is that Caesar is the primary source for this and he's the one fighting against Vercingetorix, and we don't hear about Vercingetorix until we hear about him in Caesar. So it's a bit of a, 
an information loop. Yeah. And everything else we have written about him is based on what Caesar writes. Okay, so Caesar's the primary source for everything else. Yeah. Okay. But having said that, because he's writing a war account, it's in his best interest to build up a foe, and Vercingetorix is that foe. So we do get a surprising amount of backstory for Mm. a barbarian during this era. We do. More than we get elsewhere in other texts and even in Caesar's own text, he gives him a little bit of history. Mm. So he talks about him coming from the Arverni and coming from an elite family where his father, who's called Celtilus, which you know is a name that means Celtic, presumably. <laughs> uh, he'd been a leader, but he'd aspired to what Caesar calls kingship okay, and the kingship of all Gaul. And for that reason, he had been executed. Caesar actually calls it the leadership, the first manship of Gaul. It's interesting because it's principatum, which is the term that Caesar's heir, Augustus, will use for his form of rule. Mm. It comes down to meaning monarchy. Yeah. And so the Gauls are, I mean, I'm sure that term would have meant nothing to them. But according to Caesar, they are unhappy with one person trying to take that role, which I think is a reflection of how Caesar presents the Gauls as not willing to submit to one person until Caesar comes along and forces them. Apart from that, he doesn't tell us very much about the background. And as I say, Vercingetorix doesn't turn up until the seventh year of the war in Mm. Caesar. Whereas I've said everything else is based on Caesar, but we do get a little more, very little more fleshing out in Dio Cassius, that much later Greek source, who in Book 40, Chapter 41, claims Vercingetorix and Caesar had been on good terms previously. Right. Uh, It's pretty fleeting. This is the quote from Chapter 41. Now, Vercingetorix might have escaped, for he had not been captured and was unwounded. So this is kind of halfway through the conflict. Mm. But he hoped, since he had once been on friendly terms with Caesar, that he might obtain pardon from him. So this is actually right at the end. I'm spoiling that he comes to ask for pardon at the end. Dio gives us a little bit of psychology there, which Caesar doesn't, Mm. that he's hoping that their previous connection might help. The inference here that people have taken and run with is that Vercingetorix may have fought as one of Caesar's troops, because really, how many Gauls is Caesar going to be friendly with (laughs) at this point of his life? Well, I mean, even within the Gallic War, we do see there's a tribe of people called the Idui in particular, who are usually on side with Caesar and give him support, although they join up with Vercingetorix, so Mm. he's lost them at this point. The theory is, and I I think, you know, there's no harm in speculating, that given that Dio mentions good terms, that Vercingetorix might have commanded some auxiliary troops. Because, of course, they wouldn't be in the main body of the Roman army. The auxiliaries are always cavalry. So that kind of might explain why Vercingetorix is so good at countering Caesar, at least for a while, because he would have known how Roman fighting works. He'd have known about Roman tactics and strategies. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And also, if you are Gaul and you are going to appoint somebody to lead you against Caesar, that would be a good person to lead, I guess. It it would, wouldn't it? And I hadn't actually thought about this before, but given that where this will end up is with some of the Gauls being suspicious of Vercingetorix, Mm. if he had been you know, marching with Caesar at one point, then they'd have reason to be suspicious. Sure. This is all in the land of speculation, however. Uh, yes. <laughs> Dio does tell us a little bit more about Vercingetorix's physical presence. 
he says this again at the moment of surrender, and I quote here, this is the same chapter, that when Vercingetorix approaches Caesar, he threw some who were present into alarm, for he was very tall to begin with, and in his armour he made an extremely imposing figure. Mm. This may be part of a whole sort of stereotype that the Romans have of those northern Europeans as being kind of big and strapping and often laughing at the Romans for being little. Then they always get caught out by the Romans being cleverer, of course. Mm. But maybe Vercingetorix was tall even by their standards, the standards of Gauls. So let's back up a bit then. What do we know about the process of uniting? Do we get that kind of backstory extent? Caesar represents Vercingetorix as claiming that they have to seize this moment or they'll be enslaved forever, Mm. and they have to unite and strike. To quote Caesar from Book 7, Chapter 4, he brought them over to his way of thinking, all the members of the state whom he approached, urging them to take up arms for the sake of general liberty, which is one of the things that leads me into talking about how Vercingetorix is charismatic, because at least the version we're given here is that he goes and talks to them and he persuades them. Persuasion is very important to the Greeks and Romans, and they kind of say Vercingetorix has that skill. This is not plain sailing. He manages to do that with other peoples around him, with other elites, but in a bit of a reflection of what happened to his father, his own family, his uncle, banishes him from Gergovia, from their own territory, their stronghold in Arvernian territory. So in a way that I think Romans might have admired, he amasses beggars and outcasts and drives out his opponents, if you think about the Romans having been you know, Romulus's asylum. Mm. It's all exiles and criminals. So he's, he's a man of the people. But this is also building him up in the ways that Romans would find admirable. Admirable, but also dangerous because it's swiftly followed by us being told that his followers start to call him king. As a slight aside, I often think when I read this on Vercingetorix, I wonder whether Caesar saw any parallels with himself, because this is exactly what the Senate is worried about him doing. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. And if they did read that into this, is it Caesar telling us, I won't put up with this kind of behavior? I'm not like this. Mm. This is what the enemy do. They'll talk about kings. Romans don't do that. Maybe that's why, and, and as we've got here that we're getting to, Caesar writes him as not a very good leader, as in somebody who's brutal with his own people. Yeah, there is definitely flaws here. Mm. At the same time as he is somebody that people have flocked to, but he doesn't necessarily treat them well just because of that. And he gets huge numbers of these peoples, and we get these listed by Caesar. Sinones, Parisi, Pictones, Cadurci, Turoni, Alerci, Lemniwikes, Andy, and others. He talks about maritime tribes, so on the coast. Endless numbers, I mean, there are endless numbers of Gauls, different peoples, but a huge number of them come to Vercingetorix. Mm. And this is what you were talking about. Very quickly after that, we're told that when he gets together all these soldiers and arms, he keeps them together by, I mean, you might call it really strict discipline, but it's brutal, brutal enforcement. So we're told that when somebody committed a particular offense, he put them to death with fire and all manner of tortures. This was for really serious things. For a lesser offense, he sent a man home with his ears cut off or one eye gouged out. That's for a lesser offense. Mm. To point the moral to the rest and to terrify others by the severity of the penalty. I, I mean, I think we do have to see that in context. Caesar is not immune from, you know, 
from cutting off hands yeah. or and I mean you've got the Roman practice of decimation as well. So, you know, the Gauls aren't unique in this sort of leadership. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really brutal to us. It might have sounded barbaric to some Romans too. Maybe it's meant to strike a note of this is what somebody has to do to get the Gauls to be loyal to one another. This is how kind of extreme it has to be. Yeah. Because he's doing this to his own people, whereas you just mentioned the cutting off of hands. Uh, That's what Caesar does to the enemy, not to his own. Sure. Okay, so what do we know about the tactics that he employed against the Romans And as an extension of that, are these effective and are they more effective than what the Gauls were doing prior to this? It's similar in some ways to what they've been doing previously, but for a a short amount of time, it is much more effective. And I think that is to do with having the Gauls gathered together in a, a greater force. So despite that greater force, he continues to use what I'm going to call guerrilla tactics, so ambushes in particular, and picking off strays from the Romans as they march or as they're encamped. He also uses, this again stretches back to what Caesar described in book one of the Gallic War with Orgetorix, these scorched earth tactics where as the Gauls move, they burn down everything behind them so it's no use to the Romans. Mm. They can't come and use the shelter or the agriculture from the fields. And, you know, Caesar is obsessed with uh, supply chains. He can't get a supply chain by just depending on what Vercingetorix has left behind. And it also makes it harder for the Romans to pursue them, although pretty easy to know where they've gone, I guess, if you're literally burning things down behind you. The implication that Caesar gives whenever the Gauls do this in book one and in book seven with Vercingetorix is that it means that the people following you have nothing left to go back to you as well. The, mm. Their loyalty to Vercingetorix is all they've got left. You've burned out everything else, so you may as well carry on. Mm. And he specifically says that Vercingetorix and his men had agreed that any town that couldn't be secured would be burned. And in a single day, this is a quote from chapter 15 of book seven, in a single day, more than 20 cities of the Bituriges were set on fire. The same was done in other states and in every direction fires were to be seen. So we talked about Vercingetorix's punishments being brutal, that Caesar doesn't concentrate on this, but you know, if you're burning down 20 plus towns a day, then the effect on the ordinary people of Gaul is just immense. Mm. They've lost all of their belongings, their homes. What are they going to eat? So they're just going to cast out of this in order to sustain his ambition in a way. Yeah, but it kind of shows that you know, Vercingetorix is determined at any cost. And it is quite a high cost. It's almost validated when it gets to the example of Avericum, because that is a place that he spares once they plead. I'm sure that he comes to regret sparing that, mm-hmm. doesn't he? Yeah. And again, this doesn't speak well of his reasoning, I guess, mm. that he he might act harshly when it might not be needed. And then I think you see again... You could say this of Caesar later on. Easy to see this in hindsight. Mm. Should he really have been merciful here because it's trouble in store for him? This is a city that hasn't kind of gone over to the Gallic resistance, as it were. And he knows really that he should take it apart. This is against his better judgment, but that he is entreating that they might not be compelled with their own hands to set light to almost the fairest city in all Gaul, the safeguard and ornament of their state. 
sorry, that's the people of, of Varric yeah. entreating that. And he gives way to that. He's also quite vulnerable to being accused or sensitive, I guess, sensitive to being accused of being a, a king or someone aspiring to be a king. I'm not sure whether this is a very Roman presentation that the word king is something they're allergic to, but that's the way he is shown to be. And we're told that he gave the title back to them if they thought that they were bestowing honor on him rather than deriving security from him. So he's depicted as being someone who wants to say, I'm just keeping you safe. Mm. I'm keeping you free from the Romans. I'm not aspiring to be the ruler of you all. I have to say that I think Caesar means us to read between the lines here as this is a good public facing way for him to seem. You know, I don't burn down very beautiful cities like Avaricum. I don't really want to be king, whereas he does really. Mm. We get the same sort of behaviour of Caesar later on, though, don't yeah. we? Well, yeah, yeah. This keeps, <laughs> it keeps sneaking up on us, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. We also get examples in the text of... <laughs> I almost want to call them Vercingetorix's own words, mm. but they're what Caesar says that he is saying, which yeah. is the important disclaimer. But it is interesting that we still get some facts presented this way. We get some speeches of Vercingetorix's preserved in the text. Yeah. We don't have very many of this kind of text earlier than Caesar, but it certainly probably already was and becomes typical of Roman historical texts that they present us with often quite persuasive speeches from the enemy. Mm. This is a good one. One of the speeches we have from Vercingetorix is after Avaricum, where often in Book 7 of Caesar's Gallic War, he's having to justify himself. People are unhappy with him. His own army are unhappy with him. They claim that they would have made more progress if, in the siege if he'd acted differently. And he says to them, you're ungrateful, basically. He tells them what he's doing for them, mm. right? Where would you be without me? And he says, according to Caesar, these are the services I have rendered to you, though you accuse me of betraying you. Even though your own blood has not been shed, you see before you a mighty and victorious army reduced to starvation. I have ensured that no Gallic state will receive the Roman army within its borders when it seeks refuge in ignominious flight. So he's made them safe, he says, safe from the Romans, and yet they're accusing him. They're always accusing him of maybe being treacherous, maybe not acting you know, as well as he can. And I think we're concentrating on Vercingetorix here, but what we see very clearly in Caesar's text is a man who is struggling to keep that unity together mm. all of the time. Yeah. So it's a, kind of a comment on the Gauls, that even when they get this strong leader... There's always niggling things. They won't necessarily be loyal. They won't obey. And so he's constantly besieged himself yeah, by yeah. his own forces. I guess in that instance as well, this is a reflection of Caesar saying, don't undermine your leader. Yeah. Yeah. Trust um, your general. Your yeah. general knows what he's doing. Which almost universally Caesar gets mm. in the Gallic Wars. So after 25 days, Avericum falls. The siege is over. The Romans slaughter nearly the entire population, which we're told is around 40,000 people, mm. uh, leaving around 800 alive. Those numbers are astounding, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, so Vercingetorix was probably you know, right in his tactics of burning down every town. Mm -hmm. So next we get part of the Gallic Wars where Vercingetorix gets his only but a very significant victory against Caesar. Mm. Yeah, so this is at a place called Gogovia where the battle is fought 
Vercingetorix is on higher ground, so he has the advantage there. Mm. Caesar reckons that it's Roman mistakes, not Gallic brilliance, that win the battle. Yeah. It's a rare example of Romans making a mistake, according to Caesar. It's not just a mistake. It's like a big series of mistakes. Mm. It's confusion of which Gauls are friendly and which Gauls aren't friendly and a bit of treachery from the friendly Gauls and... Yeah. And then finally his troops running off to go and confront Vercingetorix without Caesar giving the order. Yeah, never do that. It's a bad <laughs> thing to do, according to the Romans. Yeah, this is where it falls apart with the Aedui who had long been Caesar's kind of mainstay of loyal Gallic people. You're right, this is a big victory for Vercingetorix. And of course, at this point, if you're a Roman reading this, then it's a worry because the, the barbarians winning a battle, it's not the usual run of things. And so this is a point at which the Romans need a victory. They need to stomp Vercingetorix out. And this is what happens. Even though he's had this victory, Vercingetorix is kind of on the run. His forces are split up. His last stand is going to come at a place called Alicia, where he manages this kind of one last uniting of many Gallic tribes. Mm. Caesar lays siege to this town in southeastern France now by establishing a kind of double fortification around it. So two rings of siege engines and fortifications. The Gallic reinforcements come, but they don't just have one set of Roman forts to deal with there are two and so that enables caesar to kind of have the siege you know there's a ring that's dealing with the siege within keeping the people in and then there's a ring that's fighting the troops without oh so the the reinforcements so caesar's dealing with gallic forces on both ends yeah so even though there are reinforcements coming for the gauls the siege goes very badly for those within vercingetorix again has to plead with his own side and he gets a council together, and this is right at the end of Book 7 of Caesar's Gallic Wars, Chapter 89. He says, On the morrow, Vercingetorix summoned a council at which he stated that he had undertaken that the campaign, not for his own occasions, which means benefit really, but for the general liberty. And as they must yield to fortune, he offered himself to them for whichever course they pleased, to give satisfaction to the Romans by his death or to deliver him alive. Okay, so what happens to me is up to you. Yeah. So he realizes that they can't win. Mm. I mean, this siege has been long. I mean, sieges are awful because you're basically starving people to death. Mm. And, you know, this has involved the Gauls within thinking at one point, well, the women and the infirm will let them go. The Romans will take them in and enslave them at least. Yeah. And they just get left between those two sets of fortifications. Oh, okay. So they, the Romans, get, they get kicked out of Elysia, yeah. but the Romans don't take them in. Yeah. So okay. they just, I mean, Caesar doesn't tell us this, but Diocassius tells us they just starve to death oh. there. So they've seen that happen, and that's kind of his fault. He's the leader, so he has to take responsibility. And he does take responsibility, and it's interesting that, maybe it's not interesting because, as I've said, Caesar represents him as charismatic. But at the end, Vercingetorix is given this brave speech saying, I do take responsibility. You can kill me now or you can just hand me over to Caesar and Mm. we can end the siege. So it's not a kind of cowardly end, at least. He does go and surrender to Caesar. It's a very famous scene where he throws down his arms in front of Caesar It's one that's commended to a a late 19th century painting by the French artist Lionel Royer. 
where he is looking very kind of brave on his horse. The weapons have been thrown down at Caesar's feet and Caesar's sitting there looking stately. Mm. So it's kind of become a famous moment. Yeah, it's one of the most famous Asterix panels. <laughs> it starts most Asterix books to communicate the fact that all Gaul is conquered. All? No, not all. Um, yeah, where it probably wasn't that noble a moment as it's shown in those paintings. You think it might be more like the HBO Rome version? Where, where... he's uh, dragged naked in front of Caesar. Yeah, yeah and thrown at his feet, yeah. So that's the story according to the Gallic War, and that is essentially the last mention that we get of Vercingetorix in that text. But as we've said a couple of times through this, there's another account from Dio, and we do get the end of Vercingetorix's story in Dio, don't we? We do, which it happens six years later at the triumph of Julius Caesar. So in 46 BCE, at this triumph, Vercingetorix would have been paraded through the streets, probably had things thrown at him by the, the crowd and you know, who would have been shouting for Rome and against Gaul. Would this have been one of the high points of the triumph, yeah. him being led through as a prisoner? Yeah, because he's an elite, a king, he's kind of a high-status prisoner to have. So he's probably kind of high up on a float, the focal point in some way. Mm. So Roman triumphs would have, to make things clear to the crowd, they'll have things like what they call triumphal paintings. It might be a map or it might show you a painting of uh, of the siege, say, at Alicia, yeah. something like that. We don't have that kind of detail. Dio gives us the barest detail that he was marched in the triumph and then killed. Usually that killing was done by garroting, and that is probably the sad end for Vercingetorix. So kept alive for six years mm. after he surrendered, yeah. just in order to be paraded in that triumph. Yeah, wow. He wants to put on a good show, I guess. Mm. There's also a plaque in the Mamertine prison which says that Vercingetorix dies there in 49 BCE. It looks like a much later plaque because that year seems a bit off. Well, that year's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> we know that because <laughs> the triumph was in 46. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> there you go. Okay, so I don't know when the plaque was put up. Maybe it was that he was a prisoner there in 49. It's possible. I mean, our details on Roman prisons are scant because they don't generally use them, yeah. but they are for people awaiting death. So it's a kind of death row situation. The Tullianum is very small, though. It's just a single room, basically, mm. um, halfway up the Capitol Hill. So Vercingetorix was one of the main foes of that era built up by a text of Caesar's. So what did Vercingetorix mean to Rome in the context of being an enemy of such a significant campaign? I think that he's proof that the Romans under Caesar can defeat even the most kind of vicious and clever at times and charismatic enemy. Mm. So it's not surprising that he gets built up like this. And there may have been some truth in it, but we have to read Caesar, I guess, with a cynical eye. For Caesar's readers, I think this might have been exhilarating that, you know, there's kind of so many back and forths with Vercingetorix's story that he has this great victory at Gergovia, the Romans in terrible trouble, but then he's defeated in this very dramatic and bloody siege. Mm. So it's a great story, I guess, for the Romans, and they come out on top, which is the best kind of story for the Romans. Caesar then has an enemy to be worthy of other famous campaigns like that against Jugurtha in North Africa or against Hellenistic kings in Greece in the Greek world. 
people that they've fought and defeated and and been able to then hold a triumph to celebrate. Vercingetorix is what makes Caesar worthy of triumph in some ways. Mm. As an extension of that, I guess, we've got this image of Vercingetorix from the text of Caesar. So what does that mean for Vercingetorix today? We know him as a military leader. We know him as charismatic. That's got to reflect on the people of France, I guess. And this is one of their folk heroes. Yeah. His uh, particular group of Gauls does come from modern France. We shouldn't forget that ancient Gaul covers Belgium and bits of the Netherlands too. Sure, But he does come from kind of the French countryside. And he does become this folk hero who is then commemorated and celebrated, particularly in the 19th century as Europe solidifies into nation states. It's no surprise that he's celebrated by someone like Napoleon III, who erects this seven meter tall statue of him on the site of where they think Alicia was. And that's in 1865, which is at a time when the French and the Germans, they're in conflict with one another. And this is going to lead to a war where the French lose terribly. But the French are asserting themselves or trying to reassert themselves, I suppose, after the defeat of Napoleon I. And Vercingetorix is somebody that the French can affix their kind of common identity around. Because... We know that even now the French aren't necessarily very unified. They are a nation state, but they don't all speak the same version of French. You know, a lot of them resent Paris as being the center of this nation. And and so they've got a lot of local identities even now. But in the 19th century, there was a strong pull towards having a unified identity. And Vercingetorix is a good figure for pulling around this. He's kind of a tragic hero, isn't he? Yeah. They can gather around. Napoleon III was really interested in the Roman past as well because he funded a lot of archaeology around these military sites, including to try and find where Alicia was. Mm. And he puts a quote from the Gallic Wars underneath this statue of Vercingetorix. So it reads, Gaul united, forming a single nation, animated by a common spirit, can defy the universe. And this is what Caesar attributes to Vercingetorix in Book 7 of the Gallic Wars, Chapter 29 that this is kind of the way that he inspires people to join him by saying this kind of thing. Yeah. So I guess it was by building up Vercingetorix, France was trying to show that they should be united, that they should look to the past for this lesson. Yeah. There's a big story of unification there, which plays well in Mm. the second half of the 19th century, even though they're building their own empire. Yeah. So it's a bit odd because they're building this identity around a resistance leader, somebody who's resisting empire. That doesn't seem to bother these empires in the 19th century because the Brits do it a lot as well with figures of resistance like Boudicca. So this idea, I guess, of a strong leader who can withstand any threats from outside is quite appealing and one who's trying to unify this very disjointed country. Yeah. And of course, uh, the most famous uh, example of Vercingetorix these days, I guess, is uh, the Asterix comics. That's an important legacy. Indeed. It's a very important legacy. So Asterix is uh, in all-conquered Gaul, the chief of the village vital statistics, fought at Elysia. So, yeah, that's a very important legacy that we should not discount. (laughs) Yeah, and it's one that um, says that it's not really over with Vercingetorix, isn't it? Because, as you've mentioned, Vercingetorix appears at the beginning and throwing in his arms and knocking Mm. Caesar over. 
But we get this holdout from Asterix and his other villagers, even though for Caesar's version of it, that's it. It's all sewn up. Let's go home and uh, start a civil war. That's not the narrative that we get in that series. That's Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, Head of the Department of Languages and Linguistics at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your local friendly neighbourhood podcatching service. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the Germanic foe, Arminius. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>